what we commonly know as the Lord's Prayer, probably more aptly described as the Disciples' Prayer, about 50-some-odd words that Jesus himself gave us. Two places in the Bible, one in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 6 and one in Luke 18, I believe it is. Luke 18, the disciples saw Jesus praying and said, you know, we look how you pray and we look how we pray and it's not the same. So we see that John's disciple, or John teaches his disciples to pray. So Lord, would you teach us to pray? And this is week number two, and we're going to take an in-depth look at this thing called prayer. I'm very excited about it, but it's going to be challenging. Because it's going to stretch us and it's going to push, cause us to push back from what we've previously been taught and perhaps believed about prayer. You know, there's a kid once who, going out the door, asked the preacher, he said, Preacher, is heaven going to be like church? And the pastor assured him and said, No, son, it's not. The little boy said, That's good because I'm not sure I'd want to go if it was. And you know... I think sometimes that's the way we are with prayer. Um, some of you, on one hand, will go, my prayer life, Dwayne, it just seems like God's not listening. It seems like a, a, a fruitless and futile attempt at something, something perhaps routine or habit or rote. I don't know. All I know is it's not happening. And if this is prayer, I don't want that. And then some of you, on the other hand, are going to look at this series and go, Dwayne, if this is prayer, I like the old version better. I like it better when, when I go to God and just can say, God, this is what I want. When, when prayer was more about me and less about you, God, I kind of like that more. I don't know, but I do know this, that our attempt over the next seven weeks, six weeks, is to take the Bible and take a hard look at what Jesus himself teaches us about prayer. Now, let me give you three things this morning that we kind of talk about when we talk about prayer and some of the things we don't talk about when we talk about prayer. These are comments that came from our, uh, the commentaries that I used to study. And by the way, it's interesting, as I began studying for this again, and I've taught this before, not like in this de- detail, but I've looked at the Lord's Prayer before. It's amazing how many theologians, and I thought I would have some pushback for some of the great minds in theology, that, that, you know, that prayer is more than just asking God for what we want. And I'm finding out commentary after commentary and theologian after theologian are saying, Prayer is not about us, it's about God. I'm going, well, now how did we get started in this? How, how did we turn prayer around to where it became so self-focused instead of God-focused? And that's a pretty good question, uh, probably from famous pastors or perhaps a pastor you loved and dearly, and, and I'm sure along the way I've probably done some of it, is that we've misrepresented what prayer really is. One of the commentaries said these words, prayer, I'm sorry, worship is the essence of prayer. Worship is the essence of prayer. It's the center of prayer. It's not an addition that we add on. It's not something we do part of. Really, prayer as a whole is the very... Actually, worship as a whole is the very essence of prayer. Um, prayer is about putting first God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. We're going to look at some of that today. But, and we go, but wait a minute, I thought, I know, I know. But prayer really is putting God first, his name first, his kingdom first, and his will first. In fact, you could say this is the third thing. And again, this has been uh, uttered by guys a lot smarter than me. You know, prayer is not my will getting done in heaven, but God's will getting done on earth. Prayer is not my will getting done in heaven, but God's will done on earth. So today, we want to take a look at that essence of prayer. Um, your sermon sheet uses the word presence, and my wife suggested that word, and I liked it. And, and the song we just sang so beautifully invites the Holy Spirit as we come into His presence. And we're going to talk about that a lot today. And then in, in brackets, I've got the word worship. Because again, worship is such an integral part of how we pray. I really don't normally mention taking notes because that'd be hypocritical. Because when I go to a conference, I'm not a note taker. Most, a lot of men are not. Some are. I'm not one of those. My wife is. I'm not. But I want to encourage you at least to get a pen out and get that sermon sheet out. And maybe, just maybe, something there's going to be strike a chord with you that perhaps you want to write down and remember as we talk about worship in prayer today. Now, here's where we're going, so you'll know. 
We're going to look at verse number 9 and verse number 13. And this is the first and the last verse in the Lord's Prayer. And both of them deal with honoring, worshiping God. Okay, and then next week we'll come back and we'll go all the way through. But today we want to look at verse number 9 and verse number 13 and look at the essence of prayer. Then we're going on a field trip. We're going to heaven. And we're going to look how worship, and actually this is a future event in Revelation chapter 5, which also, thank you David for putting the Revelation song in. It's just part of that. And it's part of the scripture there. And so we're going to go to heaven and look at a future event. But I have a stinking suspicion that's how worship is done every day in heaven. So we're going to take a field trip. Then, because it's the election season, we're going to look at voting in heaven. Voting, aren't you just dying to see where that ties in? Voting in heaven, all right? Then we're going to look practically how we can bring that down from heaven to earth. And then we're going to close with the incredible freedom that we have. So that's where our journey is. And I better get started if we're going to get all that done. Amen? All right, here we go. Look at verse number 9 of what we call the Lord's Prayer. Adequately, really more adequately should be described as the disciples' prayer. He starts out and says, in this manner. In other words, Jesus himself, when asked about prayer, in Matthew, he's actually teaching a sermon. He says, now, this is, now watch, watch. This is a pattern for prayer. These are not magic words. In fact, if we turn the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, into something we pray every Sunday, we've done exactly what Jesus said not to do. Because he just said previous to this, he said, don't be one of these guys who rotely repeat a bunch of words as if you'll be heard for your many words. Don't do that. And so we should never just make the Lord's Prayer something we recite and worship. That's one reason we Baptists don't do that. Some denominations do. But that's why we Baptists do not because that is not what Jesus said. And we want to be biblical and we want to be scriptural. And so he tells us then that that in this manner, like this, more than what to pray, this is how we're supposed to pray. Pray like this. Therefore, and he uses that word, pray. Now, again, circle that in your Bible or write down your note sheet. It's just a natural assumption that God's people will pray. It's a natural assumption that God's people will pray. If prayer is not a part of your life, you need to examine that and say, why not? If I am a Christ follower, and if I'm a follower of of the Father and filled with the Holy Spirit and, and anointed with the Holy Spirit, why is prayer not a part? Jesus just assumed that his followers would pray. And not only that, I think there's one more thing we need to touch on. Often, our prayer lives are crisis driven. Often, our prayer lives are crisis. You know, we. We often conduct our prayer life like we do our marriage. You know, men, we don't talk a whole lot. Um, You know, you ask your wife how her day went, and you're going to get like a 37-minute answer. You ask guys, and what are they going to say? Fine. I mean, that's that's all we need to say. That's it. Fine. And and, and in our prayer lives, so often, instead of it being an intimate thing, a worshipful thing... It becomes something that, hey, God, if I need you, I'll call on you. Crisis-driven prayer. And you can take just a casual look at the teaching in the Bible. You don't see that. Oh, there's a time to pray in crisis. But if the only time we pray is in a crisis situation, once again, we have turned prayer totally upside down and made it something that God never intended to do. You know, we need to make sure we are biblical in our prayer lives. So he says, here's a pattern. Here's a pattern for when you pray. And I know you're going to pray, he would say, because you are a Christ follower and Christ followers pray. Okay? So in this manner, therefore pray. And then he used that word are. And you'll notice, by the way, or our, depending on if you're from the South or not. um, But you'll notice that every pronoun in the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, is plural. Plural. Let me go back one more time. Probably no more are we more part family together than when we pray together. Amen? And no more are we stronger in our prayer life than when we worship together. Because worship is an essential part of prayer. So it makes sense that Jesus didn't say, my Father in heaven... 
but rather he said our Father in heaven because prayer is something that we do privately and we also do corporately. And it's one of those family things we should do more. I, I told Judy, uh, actually it happened twice. Um, actually it happened three times. Uh, the the uh, guest family, my daughter, son-in-law, and grandkids came over last week for lunch. They came over. We went down Thursday night and then yesterday after All-Star, they came by the house. And here's what happened. We just talked. And we are the craziest family. And I don't mean dysfunctionally crazy. We're just a crazy family. And, and we laughed and laughed and laughed. And I told Judy going home, I just so much enjoyed being with my family. And that's the way it ought to be in the family of God. We should enjoy one another. And part of that enjoyment is speaking one to another. And part of that should be our prayer life together. Amen? Does that make sense? Does that make sense? So he says, our Father, okay, our Father in heaven. Oh, this word Father. Now, calling God Father to us is like totally normal. Amen? I mean, we all just say, okay, God, Father, 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 Father. We don't understand. Now, listen, we don't understand how revolutionary this is. Let me give you a picture. For the average Jewish guy or woman, only 14 times. How many? Okay. Only 14 times in the entire Old Testament is God called Father. Only 14 times in the entire Old Testament is God called Father. And every single time. It's as a nation, as a nation. It is never used individually. Now listen, listen, not one single time is it recorded that an individual in the Old Testament looked at God and called him father. There just wasn't that relationship. There just wasn't that intimacy. Again, the Jews would would make up a, a name for God so they didn't have to say the real name for God. There was not that intimacy. So when Jesus came along and says, if you're going to teach, if you're going going to pray, here's what you need to learn to do. You need to say, our Father. And the Jews would go, no, no, what? What, How can this intimacy be possible? And the answer is because of Jesus Christ. I just think think that's so powerful. So powerful. So don't gloss over the fact, listen, don't gloss over the fact that you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, can call God Father. That is so wow. So wow. You know, again, don't miss that power. And here's, you'll get crazier, and I kind of mentioned this last week, and I bet it won't be the last time, is that Jesus used that word, Abba. Abba. Now, again, we probably can't realistically go as far to say that the best translation of that is daddy, because I think that would go too far. But there is, in the word Abba, that sense of daddy. And again, what I said last week would probably be very true again this week, is that probably a a hybrid translation would be dearest father. Now again, imagine never hardly even being able to say the name of God. And this rabbi comes along and says, I've got something new. I've got something new. And this something new is, is not only can you call God Father, you can call Him Dearest Father. And I really believe it will help us understand prayer and the relationship we have in prayer if we could understand that the best balance, the best verbiage for prayer is a communication between a loving God And a loving child. A loving father, if you will. And a loving child. You've seen weird relationships. You've seen a father who who would be stern, okay? And and not love his child. And the child may cry out, but that stern father would reject that. You've seen that. You've seen a loving father with a child who, who really does not love the father. And you've seen that. But isn't it beautiful when the loving child... And the loving Father speak. That's when I see the child in crisis, the child on a daily day just getting up, if you will, forgive me if I'm too liberal with God, crawling up into the Father's lap and receives a hug. Our Father, our 
Abba. Don't miss that. Some of you, some of you need to apply that to your prayer life today, right now. Because you've been taught, your, your physical daddy was abusive. Your physical daddy was harsh. You've never known a loving father. And you've transferred that image of that harsh, mean father to God. And it's warping your perception of God. Hear the truth today from the scripture. As a child of God, as a follower of Christ, it is a loving father and a loving child. It is our dearest father. It is Abba. That's worth the price of admission today. Okay? So he says, so when you pray, pray like this, our Father, and His Father is in heaven, and simply put, just write down majesty and holiness. Majesty and holiness. The purpose of Jesus saying this, that this Father is above all. This Father is above all. And because of that, we are to hallow His name. We are to honor and protect His name. We are to honor and we are to protect His name. As we're going to hear over and over again, He is worthy of that. Now, I'm going to step out and take a risk, okay? But I think think I'm I'm in friends with friends. Um, After the Super Bowl, when the Broncos won the Super Bowl, and of course Peyton Manning was kind of the focus of a lot of the attention there, and afterwards, and I, these are, this is not an exact quote, but it's really close. I think the reporter said to Peyton Manning, so what are you going to do now? And Peyton Manning responded, and he said, I think I'm going to drink a few buds and thank the man upstairs. Now, don't be hard on him, because that's probably all he knows to say, like a lot of people like us. Sometimes we get way too casual with God. God is not the man up the stairs. He's not your old man. He is God Almighty, but He also is your dearest daddy. So we need to protect and we need to honor that name. And may I say this? That the way most of us pray, we destroy that name. You know why? Because the, 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 you know, in the third command, when God said, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, the worst way we take God's name in vain is not to say it on television the wrong way or with the boys telling a joke down 500 feet underground. The worst way we do not honor the name of God that we take it in vain is when we use the name of God selfishly. Selfishly. And again, so much of prayer is me-centered and not God-centered. And I need to tell you again, you won't find that in the Bible. I'm not sure where it came from, but you won't find it in the Bible. So if we're going to come into his presence, if we're going to worship, then we have the right to call him dearest daddy. But as part of that, we hallow, we honor his name. Very, very, very important. Then we go down to verse 13. Now, let me tell you this. Don't want to mess with your brains, but I'm going to tell you, probably, if you've got a particular translation, there is a chance that verse 13 is in brackets. In some of your translations, it may be totally missing. And the reason why is this. In the oldest and best manuscripts, verse 13 is not there. If you've got the old King James, 13 is there. I've got the new King James, it's in brackets. And it may be in your translation, it's not even there. And what they believe is, is that a scribe possibly added that later. Doesn't matter. We'll work that out later. But what verse 13 says about God is true, even if a scribe added it later. Because he says this, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Do you see a particular word there that makes that very significant? Yours. Yours. When, when, again, when the prayer closes, the final statement of verse 13, the final statement is this. Hey, God, it's not about me. It's about you. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory, not mine. Are you getting this? Are you understanding this? So, so when, you, when you get down in your, in your quiet place, in your secret place, and we just start spilling our guts about, okay, God, I want this, and I want that, I want this, I want that. And you're like, God's going, excuse me, it's like Christmas. It's like Christmas. Christmas is not about Santa Claus and you. Christmas is about the birth of Jesus. Well, what do we say at Christmas time? Remember the season. Are we here today? 
Remember the season? Remember what prayer's about. Prayer's about God. He's the reason for the prayer. Not us. Not us. Not us. So verse 13 is a statement of surrender. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. And yours is the glory. So let's recap. It's assumed naturally that we will pray. Our prayer life should not be crisis-driven. It should be relationship-driven. It should not be crisis-driven. It should be relationship-driven. We have the right to call God dearest Father. Something a Jew could never imagine. But this Jewish rabbi, the Son of God, God in the flesh said, It's new, guys. It's new. Things have changed. And now you have the right to call God dearest Father. We are to protect His name. We're to protect His name. Not use it so casually. In fact, again, once again, if we're not careful, when prayer becomes about us, we are misusing the name of God. And so we surrender and say this, that yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory. Amen. Which simply means, let it be so. Let it be so. Now, it's time for that field trip I talked about. So, so what does worship look like in heaven? Now, I'm watching the clock because... In all truthfulness, we should preach all of chapter 5, really. But I just just feel the need to go ahead and start at verse number 1 and just make a couple of comments before we really get to where I want to go. Would you go with me on that journey? It's snowing anyway. You're not going to really do anything. All right? And by the way, Joe says he's got four-wheel drive. We can all ride home with him. It's not a deal. All right? So here we go. Let's... I've got my new King James here, and let's look at verse number 1. Again, just a casual reading. It's almost self-explanatory. I will tell you this, that John has been caught up to heaven. He wrote the book of the Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, and now John is experiencing that revelation. Okay, so here's how it goes. Chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that would be God the Father, a scroll written inside and on the back. Sealed with seven seals. And this scroll is going to control all the judgments of the book of Revelation and the consequences. All right? So that's going to happen. It's in the hand of God. Verse 2. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Who is worthy? That's a key thought. If you're writing notes, write that down. Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. So John says this in verse 4. I wept much. One translation said, I wept, I wept bitterly because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or even to look at it. But one of the elders there around the throne said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the, now this is so good. The lion of the tribe of Judah... The root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So the elder says there is someone. And this someone is the lion of Judah. Do you have the imagery? It's the lion of Judah. So John looks. Now watch. Verse 6. And I looked. And behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, it's like the, well, this way it ought to be in worship every time, Dave. At the center of attention is something. In our worship and in our prayer life, Jesus is the center of attention. Not the preacher, not the worship leader, not the praise band, and guess what? Not you. Not you. Jesus is the center of attention. So he says, in the midst of the elders stood what? A lamb. A lamb. A lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns. And the seven horns represent uh, unlimited power. And seven eyes, which, uh, which just represents unlimited wisdom, which are of the seven spirits, the one true spirit sent out unto all the earth. Now, did you get the imagery? Don't weep, John, because the lion of Judah can open the scroll. But when John looks, what does he see? A lamb as if it had been slain. There is the balance. He's the Lion of Judah. He's King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. But He's also the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins. I'll go ahead and throw it out now because I just can't wait. The literal translation from the Greek of that word slain. I did this on your sermon sheet and starting in verse number 5. 
But the literal translation of that is slaughtered. If you look up that word in the Greek, slain translates slaughtered. And we'll talk about that just a little bit later on. So, so the lion is worthy, and he looks and sees a lamb who has been slaughtered, as, an, as in an animal sacrifice. As in an animal sacrifice. It is so powerful and beautiful. Verse 7. So the lamb came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And now we get to verse number 8, and we see how this develops into worship. And it gives us an example of how we should worship in our prayer life. Verse number 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, the four living creatures and the 24 elders all fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And that is just so pregnant, so so full of meaning. Now, now let me say something here, and you might want to write this down. To pray, we need to worship. And to worship, we need to understand. To pray, we need to worship. And to worship, we need to understand. Understand what, Dwayne? We've got to understand what Jesus Christ did for us. We have got to have a clear image of what Jesus Christ did. And that is what we find in this passage of Scripture. When it says that, that the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, they had a harp. And they're going to use that harp because they're fixing to worship. And they're going to sing what the Bible calls a new song. You heard those words in Revelation, uh, in the Revelation song that, that Robin sang. So they're going to sing a new song. And so they're going to need a musical instrument. And they have a harp. And then it says, There are golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So these elders have bowls and they're full of incense, which of course are burning and emitting this wonderfully savory odor up toward God. You know, uh, David said in Psalm 141 verse 2, May my prayer be set before you as incense, the raising of my hands in the evening sacrifice. So David said, May my prayers... Be like incense rising. And that's exact imagery that we have in Revelation chapter 5. Well, what's amazing is this incense are the prayers of the saints. A couple of things I'll let you take home and think about. First off is this. And I heard this in verse 5 this morning, which is a women's ministry, Proverbs uh, 31 Ministries. Uh, one of the teachers was speaking. And she said, think of this. Your prayers are eternal. Your prayers are eternal. Apparently, to some way, in some degree, the prayers that we pray are stored in heaven. And the imagery of Revelation chapter 5, they're stored in these golden bowls that the elders are holding. Now, in a more narrow context, and frankly, a better context, is this. That this is during the time, beginning of the Revelation. And the saints are praying, saying, how long before God you are justified? How long is this going to go on, God? And those prayers also are represented in the bowls. I hope you get that. Then we've got to stop just for a minute and go this. They're full of incense, which are the prayers of who? Who? The saints. And not the football team. The saints. Okay? Now, you, someone here is going, I ain't got no prayers in that bowl. I ain't no saint. Well, if you know Jesus Christ, you are. If you've been redeemed by the blood, you are. Because, see, sainthood is not bestowed by Rome. Sainthood is bestowed by God the Father on His children and the righteous act of Jesus Christ when we are forgiven of our sins by His blood sacrifice. If you're saved, you're a saint. Listen to this. Listen to this. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1-2. Paul writing, To God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified, who are set apart in Christ Jesus and called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. How powerful. How, now, I done, I done gave you two things today that you ought to be able to go home and go, oh, it was worth the snow. You've done learned today that unlike the Jewish men and women, you have the right. To call God Father and only Father, dearest Father. And you got, and the second thing you can take home and go over for the price of admission is not only that, God sees you as saint. Not because you did something, not because of your conduct, but because of the conduct of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. 
Amen. Yeah. I'm telling you. I'm just telling you guys. Listen. We, when we start understanding this, worship becomes very easy in our prayer life. When we start understanding what God, again, you know, if we're going to pray, we got to worship. And if we're going to worship, we've got to keep central and understand what Jesus Christ did for us. So the Bible says, verse 9, so these elders, they sang a new song and they're saying, here's the new song. You are worthy. That's just Paul's there. You are worthy. We, we could set up and worship hours and hours and decades and decades just on the theology that Jesus Christ is worthy. In this context, he's worthy to take the scrolls and to open his seals. But in the big context, he's worthy of whatever it is. Hey, he's worthy of your trust. That's why you can pray, and we're going to learn about this just coming up. You know, that's why you can pray, God, it's about you and not me. And God, I don't know what your plans is for my wife. I don't know what your plans are for healing her or not healing her in my way or your way. I don't know that. But here you got to know, God, I trust you. Because God, you are worthy of my trust. You are worthy of my service. You are worthy of my sacrifice. You are worthy of my time. You are worthy of my checkbook. You are worthy of my talents. You are worthy of my marriage. You are worthy of my career. You are worthy of my life. You just follow that away. Because the one you're worshiping is worthy. How you know, Dwayne? Because God said so. Because God said so. Do you think that would change your prayer life just a little bit? Would it change your perspective of God a little bit? Would it change your perspective of Jesus a little bit? Would it change your perspective of how we ought to do church? You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals. And there's a reason why. You were, and I went in and changed the word on your sermon sheet. And the, I think it's the Holman Christian Standard. It's already there. You were slaughtered. You were slaughtered. We've got to get a picture of that. You know, I was talking with Jonathan, my son-in-law, and we're talking about D-Day and and the carnage and the sacrifice there. And, you know, it wasn't too long ago that that a friend of mine and a friend of yours and Marsha Jones' daddy, uh, Ken Houghton, passed away. And um, Ken had a unique perspective on D-Day because he was there. It was... he was supposed to be on the boat, but they ended up putting him on one of the landing crafts. And when, when it was not too far from shore, a, a artillery shell hit it directly. I think there were like 25 or 30 men. Only six survived. And he was one of those six. And he got put on shore. And he saw the carnage. He saw firsthand the slaughter of many, many men that day. Well, like so many, like Ken, Ken's gone now. And if I were to ask some of our students today, tell me, some, tell me what D-Day was about. What was, what was June 6, 1944 about? Can you tell me something about it? And unfortunately, because time has passed and distance has passed, we are forgetting what that was about. And when we forget what that was about, then we forget the price that those men paid. And when we cease to remember the price that these men paid, we fail to appreciate it. So I told Jonathan, I said, Jonathan, there's a movie. And I wouldn't show it to your kids, um, but a movie called Saving Private Ryan begins with the D-Day invasion. And veterans of World War II who were there said it is the most accurate portrayal of the D-Day invasion. And that means carnage. That's why I wouldn't show it. Faith needs to see it one day. You know, faith, faith, faith needs... Morgan, you need to see it one day if you haven't seen it already. Why? So even though the men are gone, we can see in our brains, not, not a glorified picture of war, but the price that they paid. This is what's got to happen. We can never talk enough about what happened here because this is the center this, the, the, the Christ who hung on this cross is the center. And the more we don't talk about it and the more we don't focus on what happened here, we will grow hardened 
and we will grow unappreciative of what he did. That's why, that's what you ever say, Dwayne, why do you, first of all, why do you preach the Bible so much? Because that's what God told me to do. Dwayne, Dwayne, why do you go that cross so often? Because I told, I can't, I told David, some preacher said this, you get in the pulpit and you hightail it to the cross. Every time we need to point to the man on the cross because he is the center of focus. Not Trump, not Bush, and not Hillary. Jesus is what we need to talk about in this house. Jesus is who we need to talk about in this house because he was slaughtered and the carnage was horrific and the spiritual price he paid was unbelievable. As God, his father, Turned, he became sin, and God turned his back on his own son. Something God will never do to you, he did to his own son. Because he couldn't look upon the sin that Jesus had become. And God turned out the lights. Now look at me. He did that for you. Don't you miss that. Don't you, don't you watch some glorified movie where there's a crucifixion with no blood? I know, I can't watch The Passion of the Christ either. The truth is, it's probably the most accurate portrayal there was what Jesus went through. And I just wonder sometimes, do we need to watch it? I know we need to read it. And keep in mind, when they started worshiping in heaven, the first thing they said was, you were slaughtered. Hey, Lamb! Hey, Lion of Judah! Hey, King Jesus! You're worthy! Because you were slaughtered! You were slaughtered! With a purpose. And have redeemed us. Redeemed us. The word redeem means bought back. We've been bought back to God. The price was paid for our redemption. You've been bought back to God. How? By your blood. By the slaughter of the cross. By the slaughter of the cross. Men and women and children are brought to God. How many, Duane? Well, in heaven they knew. Out of every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. That much. Why do you go to Africa? Because they're part of that tongue and tribe and people that we've been told to tell about. Well, why don't they let the missionaries do it? Because 4,000 Southern Baptist missionaries can't reach millions and millions and millions of people. They need a little help. And we need to be a little obedient. That's why. That's why. And then he goes on and says this. Verse 10, And you have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Peter picked up on this. Listen, this is what Peter wrote. John wrote the book of Revelation down and Peter wrote an epistle. And listen to what he says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. You, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Aren't you glad for the cross? I'm glad that eternity's changed. I'm glad he brought me into a relationship where we can say, Dearest Father, I'm glad for today. I'm glad we have the privilege of walking on this earth and being storytellers of the greatest story ever told. Our gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ is too big to keep to ourselves. Heaven knew this. Heaven knew this. That's why in heaven when they worship, they remind themselves constantly of what the slaughter was all about. And then we have this, there's an election in heaven, if you will. In verse 11. Then I looked, John said, and I heard the voices of many angels around the throne. The living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000. So John says in this vision, after the elders sing their new song, all of a sudden, and again, 
in the Greek, it implies that this is the only time in the Bible where angels sing. Well, I thought they sang on Christmas Eve night, Christmas night. No, they said, glory to God in the highest. But apparently in the Greek here, it implies that they sing. And guess how many? I had to get my calculator out because I'm not that good. But if you multiply 10,000 times 10,000, you come up with 100 million. Oh, it gets better. Because John said, that's not accurate. And then he goes, and thousands of thousands. In the Greek language, 10,000 was the highest number they could write. So he did the 10,000 because that's all he had and 10,000. And he looked around and said, uh-uh, there's more than that. Said thousands and thousands. And one commentary said, perhaps billions of, woo, billions and billions of angels are singing in heaven. How'd you like to be there for that worship service? Amen. And what did they say? <laughs> Don't y'all steal my thunder. That's exactly the same with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered. I'm telling you, the message of worship is worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered. It isn't pretty. Never intended to be. We're the one who put gold on crosses, not God. No one said Black Friday was pretty, but it was beautiful. Because it purchased our salvation. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. It's simply all the attributes, all the attributes that God is worthy of. A limited picture of all the attributes that God is worthy of. That's how they worship in heaven. That's how we should worship corporately here. But that's also how we should pray and worship in our secret place. That's how it ought to happen. Now, if you'll give me just a few more minutes, I'm going to finish this dude out. It's still snowing. Joe, how big is your truck? Can you put about 200 people in it? All right. Well, if you can't, we'll work it out. Don't worry. We may have just all stay here and eat and come back and do it again. Here we go. In Psalm 34. Now, I know this is a change of gears, but we've got to get that. From heaven to earth. We got to get that from heaven to earth. And Psalmist in Psalm 34 does a pretty good job. Here's what he said. I'll move quickly. I will bless the Lord. I will declare him worthy at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. You know what just popped in my brain? The strangest things happen when I talk. You know what just popped in my brain? If his praise is continually in my mouth, I bet I'd have a hard time gossiping. If his praise is continually in my mouth, I'd have a hard time cussing. If his praise is continually in my mouth, I would have a hard time being critical. Hmm, just a thought. Didn't cost you a dollar extra. His praise shall continually be in my mouth, my soul, my redeemed soul, my blood ball. Soul shall make its boast in who? In the Lord. I ain't got nothing to boast of. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble, the lost, will hear of it and be glad. Now, this is that practical side. And don't miss, don't gloss over this. Because when we start getting this into our prayer life, when we get true worship out of heaven and on this earth and in our prayer life more specifically, something changes. Look what he says. I love the New King James. Yes, I chose it for this reason. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. In other words, help me make God big. Because when you magnify something in a physical sense, but also in an emotional sense, when you magnify something, it becomes bigger. And I'm here to tell you, when we say, oh, magnify the Lord with me, when God is big, our problems get smaller. I'm telling you, if you will take the time and declare worthy is the lamb, if you'll take the time and remember the slaughter of the cross, 
When you'll take the time to make God big, all of a sudden the things that you're so worried about won't seem so significant. Not because you changed. And not because the problems changed. But because your God was put out of the box and allowed to be God. We do box God up too often. So magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name. How? Together. Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Let's exalt the Lord together. Imagine a church. You can imagine. Imagine a church that starts adding corporate worship and individual worship in their prayer life. Imagine the power when they come together into worship. It would be totally phenomenal. So we've got to end up real quick. Give me just a minute to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 21 through 23. Because this is so good. This is so good. I grabbed this this morning or yesterday also from from that Proverbs 31 ministry teacher. And she talks about the tabernacle and the different way and how careful, how careful the priest had to be when he was heading toward the Holy of Holies. And we don't have time, I'm going to tell you now, we don't have time to treat this right. Okay, I'm going to tell you right now, but I can get you a quick picture. But the priest had to be so careful as he headed for one time a year on the Day of Atonement, he went to the tabernacle, past the Holy and to the Holies of Holies. Okay, But if he broke one step, if he broke one rule, he could be killed by God. And he's only allowed to go in there one time. And only the high priest once a year. That was the limited access that the Jews had. Now watch this. Verse 21. And this is the author of Hebrews. And since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who rules over the house of God, and you thought you were in charge. Hey, preacher, you thought you were in charge. Hey, Mr. Deacon, you thought you were in charge. Hey, Mr. Member, been a member for 35 years, you thought you were in charge. No, it's God's house. And the high priest rules over the house. Y'all say amen for that. Let Let us go right into the presence of God. Since we've got a high priest who rules over the house of God, since we've got a high priest who was willing to be slaughtered on the cross and pay the price of redemption and got our atonement for our sin from God and endure the wrath of God, since we've got that, let's go on in to the presence of God. Is that not powerful? What a, what a priest had to be so careful to do and only could go one time a year we can go any time we want. Again, we don't have time to, to do this justice. But the bottom line is this. When Jesus cried out and said, It is finished. And that veil was torn in two. Four inches thick, 60 feet tall, 40 feet wide. When it was torn in two, God hung out the welcome sign for His children. And He said, Come on in, child. And see your dearest father. And there was the tabernacle. And that represented, the mercy seat represented the presence of God. And God said, come on in. Come on in. We can come boldly. Listen to this. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. And Jesus made it all possible. That's something worthy of worship. Worthy of worship. So what's the bottom line? What's the bottom line? It's this. When we're willing to trust God because He's worthy, we're willing to trust God and be willing to say, okay, Father, I saw some things in Scripture I've not seen today about prayer. I'm willing to trust You. I'm willing to take my first baby step to making worship, excuse me, prayer about worship and more specifically, prayer about You. I know you're God. You're sovereign and you are a good God. I'm willing to trust you with my prayers. Does that mean you get them answered all the time you want? Believe me, it means you will not. But it does mean that you're trusting a God who never makes a mistake. Never makes a mistake. And you're going to discover, because I know, because I'm, I'm there, I walk, you know, I walk with you this, through this stuff. 
But you're going to find out often God's going to be talking to you and not the person you're praying for. Often the solution begins right here with you. So would you bow your heads right now? Thank you for your patience today. Thank you so much. Our invitation today is really twofold. The first one is this. If you're here today and you kind of wondered, how do I go to heaven? You heard a pretty clear picture today of what it means to have a relationship be able to call God dearest Father. And you, you probably heard enough. You may not understand all of it. I don't understand all of it. But you heard enough to know it's not about going to church. It's not about you being better or good and quitting this and starting that. It's about what happened 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross when God in the flesh willingly died for your sin and for my sins. Brother Brent's going to be standing down front. And man, what a great day. What a great day to come and say, okay, I want to know more about how I can call God dearest Father. Dearest Father. And Brent and some of our friends here today, we'd be glad to spend just a little bit of time and explain that to you um, even today. And the second part is this. You know, I think, David, this is going to be one of those times I want y'all to sing. I'm going I'm, I'm to let you stay seated. Now, I know of one young man who's probably going to make a decision today. Even though you're seated, you just get up and come. If you want to come and pray at the altar, we'd love that. If you want to join our fellowship, you know, join our church, we'll be glad to explain that, how that can happen. Maybe you're saved, but you've never been baptized. And you realize that Jesus is worthy of your obedience and baptism. So today you want to be baptized. Like, you know, whatever it is. Even though you're sitting down, you just get up and come on down. I'm going to have everybody keep their eyes closed. Because I want us to take the first baby step today in telling Jesus he's worthy. So if you're a Christ follower today, I want you to just keep your seat. They're going to, they're going to sing that wonderful presence song again. And invite God into the presence of your life and you into his. Just right there without, you don't need to pray out loud. Just right there. Right there. Just pray. And take the first step in saying, God, you're worthy. Then my prayer life, starting today, is going to be about you and not about me. As the team sings, would you please come?